Thanks so much, Jeff. Thank you all for coming today, and those of you that are online, really great to have you joining us. Uh, my name is John, as he mentioned, my wife Sue over there. We have the privilege of being the founding pastors of this great community. Uh, 30 years, that's amazing. I know, maybe I don't look old enough to have been here 30 years. Yeah, maybe I do. Anyway, it's great to, to have been part of something for a long time. You get to actually sometimes marry the kids that you have dedicated. That's pretty incredible. Uh, so we are celebrating two very special days this weekend. Today we celebrate Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to the dads among us. Uh, God bless you. You know, we've all had dads. I know sometimes it's... Uh, you know, Father's Day can be like a mixed feel uh, because I know my kids, we, years ago we did a parenting talk and Sue and I had asked our kids to email us, what would you like to take forward from our family and what would you like to leave behind? And we really hoped that the first list was longer and it actually was, so that, that's a great thing. But anyway, I thank God for dads. My dad has been with Jesus now for 35 years, almost half of my life, and I miss him very much. I remember hearing so many wise one-liners from my dad, like, John, most of life is about showing up. You might do something great, you might do something average, but you won't do anything if you don't show up. So, show up. And uh, I would roll my eyes at that and many others then, but they are so precious to me now. We appreciate all of you dads. May God fill you with his spirit and give you everything you need to live your life well as you follow Jesus. And yesterday, we celebrated the new federal holiday, Juneteenth National Independence Day. Now, I'm kind of late to the party here and just learning about this. Maybe you are too. But Juneteenth celebrates the end of slavery in the U.S. On June 19, 1865, Union Army General Gordon Granger announced General Order No. 3, proclaiming to enslaved African Americans in Galveston, Texas, that they were free from the institution of slavery, only two and a half years after President Abraham Lincoln had proclaimed the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, I'm glad that Juneteenth is now a national holiday. And I'm sad that I didn't learn about it in school. I don't know if you did. I'm sad that I only heard about it for the first time in my life last year. July 4, 1776 is an important day in our country's history. It marks our nation's independence from the UK, and that's great. But June 19th marks the end of slavery. Let's celebrate both because freedom is so precious, isn't it? Jesus, our Lord, came to set us free from every kind of sin and slavery, and he sent us to set others free. He says this, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth is encapsulated in a person, Jesus. And Paul echoes Jesus in Galatians 5. So Christ has truly set us free. Now make sure you stay free, and don't get tied up again in slavery to the law. For you've been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. May you and I live in the freedom Jesus died and rose and won for us. And may we share that freedom that we found in Christ with everyone we can all over. I want to pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for the freedom that you have given us. We thank you for your love for us 
your, your love that breaks the power of fear, your love that breaks down every barrier. Would you, would you encourage us? Would you pour, pour your love into our hearts so that we could be carriers of freedom, we could be ministers of reconciliation to this broken world? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're in the last two weeks of our series, Creators, Not Consumers, and we've been exploring what it means to be made in the image of God and remade into the image of Jesus Christ so that we can actually partner with God and change the world. Two weeks ago, Jeff shared a wonderful message uh, on changing the world through showing hospitality. Sue and I listened to it in the parking lot when it was raining in Branson, Missouri, and it was great. <laughs> uh, last week... Courtney shared a great message on changing the world through loving our neighbors. And I've heard many different stories from people who have had more interaction with their neighbors as a result. Way to go. Today, I want to share with you how we can change the world through discipling out racism from our own lives and our churches. I believe racism is one of the most deeply rooted patterns of sin in Jesus' church. We've been struggling with racism in our nation and in our churches for over 400 years. I believe racism is one form of idolatry. It's, it's trusting in something other than Jesus for our safety, our satisfaction, our significance in the world. And idolatry is Satan's chief way to enslave us and keep us from being fruitful disciples of Jesus. Jesus came to set us free from idolatry so that we can love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Now, Courtney shared last week, the studies show that we need to experience, and I wrote this down in my notes, it might not be word perfect what she said, but it is the gist of it. We must need to experience catalytic events, some significant distress in order to change in the deep places of our lives. Now, that has certainly been my experience. Over and over, God has used significant disruptions in my life and world to stimulate me to grow and become more like Jesus. The violent killings of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, Dante Wright, and the six precious Asian women who were murdered in Atlanta last year shook me deeply. And I've been trying to learn about the real history of our nation that I didn't hear in school. And I've been asking myself, where do I need to grow and change so that I can make a real difference as a lifelong student of Jesus? I believe, along with many Christian leaders, that we are living in the civil rights movement of our day, even as people did in the 60s. And I lived in the 60s. I was 15 in 1964 when the Civil Rights Act was passed. I was 16 in 1965 when the Voting Rights Act was packed. And at age 19, 1968, I came to faith in Jesus. It was a crazy year. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Riots all over the place on university campuses. You know, God uses tumultuous times to get at core things in our lives and nation that he wants to change. The summer of 1968, I spent, I spent actually two summers, 68 69, working with a nonprofit that was doing racial reconciliation work in Newark, New Jersey. Those experiences helped shape my understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. 
And I'm convinced that racial reconciliation is central to our spiritual formation as disciples of the risen Jesus. Jesus was an anti-racist. In his sermon in Nazareth in Luke 4, he proclaimed that he had come to set the oppressed free from every nation. And he stirred up the crowds when he said, this is not going to be on your screen because I thought of it this morning, too late for the slides. Certainly there were many needy widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the heavens were closed for three and a half years and a severe famine devastated the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but he was sent instead to a foreigner, a widow of Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And many in Israel had leprosy at the time of the prophet Elisha, but the only one healed was Naaman, a Syrian. Now, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious, jumping up. They mobbed him, and they forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff. They were going to kill him. But he passed right through the crowd, and he went on his way. Jesus came to disciple out racism in my life and yours and in our churches. So in an attempt to learn and grow as a pastor and leader, this year I took a preaching master class all online, and I heard incredible preachers, African-American preachers, Asian preachers, Latino preachers, white preachers. It was organized by African-American pastor Albert Tate, and it focused on this idea of discipling out racism. So why do we need to focus on discipling out racism from our lives and churches? I think simply because racism has been discipled into our lives for many years. As I reflected on my life, I realized that that was true. From my earliest days, racism was discipled into me. I grew up in a small rural community, west central Minnesota, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, where they converge. It was 100% white. The only people of color I ever met were Native American students that I played basketball against. And I still remember my coach telling us, you need to memorize the number of the person you're guarding because they all look alike. A totally racist comment, and I didn't even realize it. That was just where I grew up. Racism and discrimination were also discipled into me and my family. Uh, my wonderful grandma, Carrie Cotterty, an immigrant from Norway, uh, lived with uh, our family for about three months in the year. And I loved my grandma. And I really had so much fun playing cards with her. And I won most of the time, except when she cheated. I don't know if any of you grandma and grandpas ever have cheated your grandkids, but she got called out by my aunt. She said, Carrie, you're cheating him. And she said, I know, but he's good, and I can't win otherwise. Anyway, she was a wonderful lady, and I loved her. Uh, she was a fiercely committed Norwegian. And for some reason, she did not like Swedish people. Maybe she'd had a painful experience in the old country. Maybe she learned it from her parents. I don't know. But she used to sing a little song to me when she put me to bed, and one of the phrases was this, 10,000 Swedes ran through the weeds, chased by Vaughn Norwegian. I'm not quite sure why she would put me to bed singing that, except unless she wanted me to feel safe as a little Norwegian boy. I don't know. <laughs> but my mom carried that prejudice against Swedish people forward. And so my mom lived with Sue and I for the last three and a half years of her life, and she came to Jesus, and uh, she was part of River Heights, and you people loved my mom so well. She's with Jesus now, and I'm just so grateful for that time. 
Uh, during that time, John Wimber, who was one of the early founders of the vineyard, he asked a guy named Hans Sundberg, who was the leader of the vineyard in the Nordic nations, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, Denmark, Finland, to come to Minnesota to help teach the Minnesota vineyards how to reach Scandinavian peoples. Uh, <laughs> that was a nice idea. It didn't really yield much fruit, other than Hans and I became really good friends. And he would stay with me periodically. In the midst of that friendship, he said, Jan, I would like you and Sue and maybe Justin for worship and maybe Bruce and Bonnie Gustafson, come to Sweden and be part of our summer camp this next year. And uh, so we did. So uh, Sue and I taught and, and, and Bruce and Bonnie trained people and Justin led worship for two weeks. It was one of the highlights of our life, being with our friends in the Nordic lands. Uh, in preparation for that trip, Hans would call me different times to set up. For some reason, he didn't have the church number, so he'd call me at home. Well, my mom was living there, and she was really hard of hearing. And this was in, in the waffle, and he'd call, and she got a, she, he would call, and he'd say, Is Joan Marston home? And she would say, There's no Joan Marston here. And she'd hang up on him. She did it twice. She hung up on him as he was calling from Sweden. One night at the table, she said, I get these strange phone calls. Somebody wanting Joan Marston? And I, and I said, did he say his name? Yeah, I think it was Hans. I said, Mom, that's my friend from Sweden. We're, you know, and she said, oh, I'm so sorry. And uh, so we, as we, I said, he's going to come and stay with us, Mom. And she said, she kind of looked kind of serious, and she said, I will be taking my meals in my room. She didn't want to eat with him. Uh, so he comes, and I, I thought, she'd probably forget that by the time he got there. Nope. She's in her room. I'm embarrassed. This is my mom, who I dearly love, who's like discriminating against my friend, who I also love. And I apologized to him, and he said, oh, yawn, not a big deal. I, too, have a mother. <laughs> I, too, have a grandmother. We have a similar song. It's just slightly reversed in Sweden, in Swedish. <laughs> and I said, well, how do you actually feel about Norwegians? Oh, we love them. They're our crazy cousins. Anyway, so... <laughs> So, uh, after a few days, he said, I want to go talk to your mother. And I said, I don't know if that's a good idea, Hans. And he said, oh, it'll be fine. So he just walks down the hall, and I'm following him, trying to, like, hopefully, if there's a damage control, I can be there. And so he, uh, he notices above my mom's bed this beautiful black tapestry that her great-great-grandmother from Norway had made, squeezing berries into dye. And it was awesome and beautiful. My, my sister has it now. And so he t commented on it, and he complimented her. What a beautiful tapestry it was, and how was that made, and who made that, and what is your family like in Norway, and uh, how, why did your family come? And he just heard her story. And then she asked him a little bit of his, and my mom was in great pain, never lower than a five for years. And he said, Elizabeth, could I pray for you? And so she let him pray for her, and she cried. And they found a relationship. And, and because he loved her. And she began to love him, and she said, I want to send an apple pie with you back on the plane to Sweden. She made great pies, and he said, well, I would love that, Elizabeth, but maybe make one here, because I can't take it on the plane. But Jesus broke the power of my mom's fear and the discrimination and racism that was in her heart. Now, I believe all of us have had some degree of racism discipled into us. But good news, it can be discipled out. You know, God speaks often and directly about racial injustice in the Bible. Genesis to Revelation is full of God calling us to reconciliation through the power of the gospel. 
Genesis 1 and 2 tell us that God created all people in his own image. He loves and he values all people equally. Now, we broke God's heart. We broke his good creation in our own lives when we rebelled against him. But God has come personally in Jesus to rescue us, to restore all creation. And in Genesis 12, God gives Abraham a great promise. He says, I will bless you and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, the you there is singular, which relates to Jesus. We find that in Galatians 3.14. People are blessed through Jesus. Revelation 7, 9 to 10, the end of the Bible says this, describes the great future that God has planned for us. John says, after this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And I say this here, when we go when we go to heaven, it's kind of an interim trip, and then we're all going to come back to a restored heaven and earth. We will take our culture and our particular ethnicity with us. I will be a white man in the new heaven and new earth. But I'll be a perfect one with a perfect body. I am so looking forward to a perfect body. I know this one is like pretty great. But anyway, I'm looking forward to a perfect body. Aren't you? <laughs> Actually, this one is not as great as... Anyway, that's a whole other story. Uh, but I'm looking for, but we're going to bring our whole culture, our language. Now, in, the, in a miracle of God, we'll all be able to understand each other, but there's not, we're not going to be colorblind. Can I just say to you, some people say that, that that's the answer to racism. Just be colorblind. I just see people. That's not true, and it is not helpful. It's disrespectful, okay? I am half Norwegian, half Scottish, Irish, a little bit of French in there. And I value all of that. You should value who you are. I want to respect who you are. Jesus came to save who you are. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What a great picture. And you know, God wants our present to look more and more like that wonderful future that is ahead of us. Paul describes our present powerfully in Galatians 3, 26 to 29. He says this, For you are all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ, like putting on new clothes. There's no longer Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male and female, for you are all one in Christ. You are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs, and God's promise to Abraham, the promise I read in Genesis 12, belongs to you. Now, Paul is not saying that these distinctions no longer exist, Jew, Gentile, male, female, so on. But with the coming of the gospel of the kingdom, they no longer define believers as they had before. Now, uh, the Bible describes the struggles of God's people with racial injustice honestly and directly. Even the Apostle Peter and Barnabas, two of the great leaders, primary leaders in the early church, both struggled with racism. Now, Tim Keller, who was the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York, he's got a series of articles called Grace and Race. You can find them on YouTube. You can look on Google. They're worth reading. I'm drawing a number of my comments from those articles. He says this, Despite the miracle of Pentecost, the book of Acts shows us how hard it was for Christians to absorb the message of the gospel as it bore in on race and racism. Acts 10 and 11 are a classic case in point. God wants Peter to go and see a Roman centurion, Cornelius. 
but he has to send multiple strong, obviously supernatural signs to Peter in order to get him even to visit a Gentile, non-Jewish person. First, he gives Peter a vision of a huge sheet or a tablecloth on which rests unclean animals as designated by the Mosaic law. And God's voice tells him not to consider anything that God has created as unclean. And he says this to him three times to make the point. But the vision alone is not sufficient for Peter to get moving. He doesn't get it. Second, the God, the Spirit, directly commands him, go downstairs, he was praying up on the roof, because there are men there that are coming to see you, and you should go with them. And then finally, he hears from the men that an angel had appeared to, a, to the Gentile centurion Cornelius. So three strong supernatural directive communications. This shows how strong racial prejudices were and how wide the gap was between Jew and Gentile. But finally, Peter goes to the home of Cornelius, and he comes to confess this, Acts 10, 34-35. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but he accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. So this is one of the central messages of the entire book of Acts as we see Jewish believers under the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel, accepting and embracing first Samaritans, then Africans in Acts 8, then Romans in Acts 10, and then Greeks in Acts 11. Now, between you and me, uh, I need all kinds of help. You're praying for me, right? I appreciate it. I need all the help to grow in Jesus. I need the work of the Holy Spirit to, to settle my own heart, to break the power of my own fears, to help me want to reach out. I know a lot of you, you know, you're, you're knowing me now. You're knowing the 52 years of following Jesus version uh, where I really like people and I enjoy talking to great varieties of people. Uh, yeah, this is the 52 follow, year following Jesus version. The early version, when I was in college before Jesus, uh, I had, you know, paid for my room and board. I didn't eat half of the meals the first year. I was so afraid of what people were saying or thinking about me while I stood in the lines. Of course, they weren't thinking a thing about me. <laughs> it was all in my head. I was so bound up with fears and judgments, self-judgments, self-rejections. I could not get out of my own way. But Jesus has come. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you had a hard time getting out of your own way. But Jesus came into my way and he has begun to change me and I am forever grateful. He wants to do that in all of us. The Holy Spirit worked powerfully and persistently in Peter to enable him to lead the charge, to welcome Gentiles into the family of God simply by trusting in Jesus. So it is really remarkable to see Peter go backward and refuse to eat with Gentile believers in Antioch in Galatians 2. We see this story in verses 11 to 16. Paul says, but when Peter came to Antioch, now Antioch was the We'll talk, I'm going to talk about this more next week. It was the first sending church to the world. It was multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial. And Barnabas, interestingly, and Paul had helped establish this church. It was a great church. But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face publicly. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. Eating with somebody meant more than just like having a burger or whatever. 
uh, it me meant you were entering into a relationship, you were making a commitment of friendship, and, and that's what it, it is for us as well. And so Peter was doing that. He was saying, I accept you. You're welcome. We're welcome into the family of God together. But afterward, when some friends of James came, a little mysterious as to who these people were, they were from the Jerusalem church. They were Jewish. They were part of what's called a circumcision group that believed that, you know, it's, it's important to come to Jesus, but you need to add being circumcised and obeying the law of Moses to that. Can I just say to you, if we add anything to the work of Jesus, we're saying the work of Jesus wasn't enough, wasn't good enough. Friends, that's idolatry. So, but Peter, when they came, Peter got afraid and he wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, his two-facedness, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Paul says, When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, you might ask, well, is that a little mean? He says it in front of everybody. Well, friends, you know, you correct in the context of the problem. The problem was public. Peter was doing this publicly. He was sending a whole message, and he was a leader. Can I say this to you? All of you have leadership in your life, varying degrees. You're all called to be leaders. You know what leaders do? People follow leaders. And if leaders are leading in a really good direction, people go in a good direction. If they're leading in not a very good direction, they go in that direction. So can I just encourage you? Hey, it's so important to, to, work, on, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, to look at your heart, because all the issues of life come out of your heart. Okay? I have learned, people have said this to me over and over, they said, you know, I like your preaching. It's good, thank you. But what I most like about you is your person. You spend time with me, you talk to me, you listen to me. And I try to take a compliment out of that, like, well, what do you mean? You, you know, anyway, I'm still working through my own stuff. You, you just like my preaching? Anyway, they say, oh, come on, we love you, whatever. Uh, Peter was a leader, and he was leading in the wrong direction now. And so Paul talks to him in front of everybody. He says this, Since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners, he's playing here, like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. What was happening here in the circumcision group was they were saying to people who were not Jewish, you know, yeah, come to Jesus, but you really need to follow all the Jewish regulations. You kind of need to come to Jesus through, through being Jewish. That's the path. It wasn't the path. The path was straight to Jesus because of what Jesus had done. So Paul's interaction with Peter, to me, shows us how important it is for you and I to have regular conversations about race in the church. Uh, this preaching master class that I listened to, Ricky Jenkins is a pastor in California, the pastor of Southwest Church. He's kind of my new current favorite preacher. He, he did a series at the Multiply Vineyard on planting churches. He says this, he says, conversations about race need to become normalized not criticized, celebrated, not isolated. 
I'm so thrilled that we have a racial identity and inclusion team here at River Heights, and we have a racial justice life group. Uh, we showed the movie Selma last night right here, and I came and went because I had not seen the movie. It moved me. I'm glad for that. But can I just say to you, this, these conversations need to happen in all of our groups, women's groups, men's groups. Lynn Stafford and I are going to lead a group on welcoming the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It'll start actually the 1st of July. One of the things we're going to talk about is how these different gifts help break through barriers to connect with people of different races and ethnicities. Paul's basic argument to Peter, he's being a good friend to Peter. He says this, God didn't have fellowship with you on the basis of your race and culture. Though you were good and devout, your race and customs had nothing to do with it. Your relationship to God is not based on race, it's based on grace. Okay? And he says, then, well, how then can you have fellowship with others on the basis of race and culture? Now, he doesn't say directly to him, racism is a sin. He's not just trying to go that way to him, though indeed it is a failure to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Rather, he's going deeper. He's exposing the roots of racism, the spiritual roots. What are those? It's a, that's a... Roots of racism are a rejection of the gospel of God's grace and a return to trying to justify ourselves by our own moral efforts or our own racial pedigree. When we fall into racism, we're trusting in our own works righteousness in at least one part of our life. We try to devise ways to feel superior. That's what racism is, friend. It's saying uh, because of different skin color or hair color, uh, it isn't just difference, it's, it's I'm better. I'll just say to you, you know this anyway, I'm an old white male, okay? I've had privilege my whole life. If I'd have been six, two, or three, I'd have even had more privilege, but I'm a short old white male, okay? What do I mean by that? I never thought I had privilege. I grew up in this tiny town of 300 people. My dad was a school teacher. It was a, you know, a good job in the community, but he didn't, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. I never thought I had privilege. I've always had privilege. I've had access to education, I've had access to healthcare, I've had access to buying a home. I've had access my whole life. Now, the issue for me is not to, not, not to deny that, but let me use my privilege for good. So I worked at Mercy Vineyard for the last two years and we were hunting for a new lead pastor. By the end of June of 2020, we had zero viable candidates. We talked to 25 people. They didn't either fit the profile or they weren't interested. And we thought, oh my Lord, what do we do? And our, our key leader, Libby, on our church team, she, and we talked and she said, I just think we need to, I think this might be a great time for Mercy to hire a lead pastor of color. So we, we, talked, we reached out to Joshua Williams, who's the lead pastor at the vineyard in Elm City near Yale. And uh, he said, hey, here's the list of, I think, six, seven people that are ready to be lead pastors. And Gary Dawkins, who's now the new lead pastor at Mercy, is on that list. I'm so grateful. And I used what little bit of influence I had to say, yes. And Gary and I are friends. We've become friends the last six months on Zoom, and we have now finally met each other face to face. You can do that. Use the privilege. Use the access you have for good. Peter's racial pride was grounded in his fear. And when our sin is grounded in fear, we need to be loved. We need to be strengthened in order to get the courage to do what's right. 
in spite of our fear. I know fear, friends. I know fear. I also know being set free from fear. Being set free from fear is better. You know, and if that's something you're struggling with in any way, we would love to pray for you today. We're going to be praying up uh, live for people here uh, as, we, as we do worship because we love to connect with God in worship as we close our services. You know, Paul appeals to his friend. He's being a good friend to Peter. Proverbs says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, and deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. If you had a choice, a wound or a kiss, what would you choose? Well, normally it wouldn't be the wound, right? But of course it depends on who's giving the kiss. Anyway, uh, but we need to, like, be willing to speak the truth in love to each other and have good conversations and have this become a more normal thing for us. I need to know what you know. I don't know what I don't know. And neither do you. But we can know more together. So as I mentioned, we love to close our services with worship and prayer, so if the music folks could come and get ready to do that. I'm going to share a couple tips. Tips are a little different this time. Usually they're read, pray, do. But I have three, three steps that I think you could take that actually I am borrowing from Jamar Tisby, the author of The Color of Compromise, which is a wonderful book about how the white church has been complicit in racism for the history of the U.S. It's painful and necessary to read. His second book is How to Fight Racism. The story we read about Peter and Paul shows how easy it is for us to fall back into sinful patterns of race, like racism. And it shows how much we need good friends who will love us and speak the truth and help us get back on track. So here are the three steps that Jamar Tisby talks about as we move forward in discipling out racism in our own lives and in our church. Awareness, relationship, commitment. A-R-C. Awareness, relationship, commitment. So number one, Become aware. Read and listen to good resources. You can check out the racial justice resource list on the River Heights website. You can read Galatians 2, Acts 10 and 11. Two, build relationships. Why not get together with a person of color in these next couple weeks, maybe have coffee or dinner, and ask to hear their story. Build a relationship. And three, be committed for the long haul. Because these roots are deep in our country and our nation, and they're not going to be pulled out immediately. Yesterday I noticed I had three big weeds in my backyard, and I thought, ah! So I went out to pull them out. You know what I pulled out, don't you? I pulled out the top. I didn't get any other roots. So those, I'm going to see those suckers again, I'm sure. Anyway, to get at the roots, it takes time. So be committed over the long haul. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you lament and confess our corporate sin of racism. Make the choice to be an ally to people of color. Speak up when people make racist comments. I'll be honest here. I think my sins in this regard are primarily sins of omission. I haven't spoken up enough as a pastor against racism. I'm just going to tell you. Those days are over for me. I'm going to speak up wherever I hear racist comments and call them out because it's not good for the person saying them or anyone hearing them. 
And hey, I don't get paid for this anymore, so nobody can fire me actually for that, all right? Anyway, uh, who knows if I'll be up here next week, we'll see. Um, but speak up and work with organizations who are helping with housing, economic, education, health access needs. I wanna pray for us and then uh, I'd love to have those who pray for people and on our team to come up now and be available to pray with anyone here that wants prayer. I had a few words in worship. Uh, some of you feel, well, some of you not only feel, but you've actually been marginalized, discriminated against due to your race, your gender, your age, your economic situation. Jesus doesn't want that, and he wants to free you from that. He wants to break that power. Somebody's got pain behind their right ear. We'd love to pray for you. If I'm a little off and it's under your, behind your left ear, we'll pray for that one too. Uh, some of you have the fear of speaking out. I talked about speaking up. Some of you were literally told as children, you know, just be quiet. Jesus wants you to be able to speak up. Some of you have swelling in your joints. And someone's recovering from an injury of some kind. So we pray for you for anything. But if that relates to you, please come and get prayer. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that you've come to break the power of everything that is not good, that has come over our lives, our minds, our hearts, our bodies. You've come to set us thoroughly free. One great day, we will experience that complete freedom. But Lord, today we can experience more. And we want to. And Lord, we do lament, we do confess our own sins of omission, commission, where we haven't loved people well. We haven't uh, stepped forward to build relationships with people of color. We haven't been helpful in the way you want. Lord, would you forgive us? Would you change us? Would you help us take our next steps? And we thank you in Jesus' name.